We are uh, continuing our series in Acts, and uh, we're going to look at the second half, or I should say the remainder, of chapter 20 this morning. So uh, a lot of you were missing last week for various circumstances, and that's quite all right. That's kind of how life is sometimes. And last week, one of the things that we saw was this compassion that Paul showed for those he was ministering to. We saw how he had traveled around to um, Asia and Macedonia and to Greece, and he visited those churches there, and he repeatedly exhorted them and shared comfort and comforted them. And what we saw was this, this passion and this love for his friends and for his fellow believers. And the other thing that we saw was that partway through chapter 19, uh, he reveals that the Holy Spirit has told him that he is to go to Jerusalem. Now, he's been planning to go to Jerusalem because he's been taking up an offering for the saints who are heavily persecuted and oppressed. Right, And as he's been traveling to these other churches that he has planted in these other regions, he's been taking up an offering and receiving it so that when he goes back to Jerusalem, he can share this blessing with those who are in need. But at the same time that this is his plan, sort of naturally, if you will, spiritually, the Holy Spirit has said, you're to go there because this is now God's assignment for you and... When you go, you're going to experience bonds and affliction. Wow. I mean, think about if the Holy Spirit revealed that to you, how you might respond to that. Would you respond with exuberance and joy and, all right, I'm in, I'm ready to go. And Paul was revealing to many as he was traveling, this is what I have waiting for me. I don't know what it's going to be like when I get there, but the Holy Spirit has said, this is what's going to happen. And so this morning, we're going to continue on, and one of the things I think we'll see is, after last week seeing this comfort that Paul gave to those he ministered to, we're going to see a love, maybe even in the other direction this morning. Our last couple of verses in chapter 20 are pretty amazing, and we'll see love for those that Paul ministered to return back to him in this really, really practical, very emotional and loving way. I was texting with my friend Matt. Uh, Matt is a gentleman that's part of our ministry on Wednesday mornings downtown. And Matt and I were commenting how we, much we've enjoyed being able to challenge each other theologically and, and ask tough questions of each other. And at the end of this text exchange, he said, have you ever read C.S. Lewis's Four Loves? And I said, no, I haven't. And he proceeded to explain that in this book by Lewis, he kind of goes through those four types of love that the the Greeks had. And you have heard us talk about this before. You've heard of um, a love called like storge or storgi, right? A, A parental love that's just inherent that a parent has for his or her child. Um, There's agape, right? An unconditional love that we see from God our Father towards us. There's also eros, 
which is a more romantic love that a husband and wife might have for each other. And there's also philia, or phileo, which is a brotherly love. That's where we hear the term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, or as Susan calls it, the city of brotherly shove, because she's from Philadelphia. West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground. You, you all can finish it if you, if you have the need. Um, and, and so Matt proceeds to share with me over this text message, this is what Lewis says about philia, or brotherly love. He says this, that lovers build their relationship face to face, but friends build their relationship side by side. Lovers are driven by emotion, chemistry, and passion, but friends are motivated by choice, and therefore friendship is more substantial than Eros. And I think, I didn't read the book, but I believe that one of the things that um, Lewis goes on to explain is how our contemporary society has placed such an emphasis on Eros. The romantic love is so important to us, and especially in the Western Hemisphere. But he proceeds to explain that in ancient cultures, friendship was really important. Friendship with one another that was rooted in a choice and and a common decision to love was extremely important to the ancient cultures. I think we'll see that uh, this morning a little bit, that Paul and those he discipled to had this common friendship and common interest in Christ Jesus in a bond that just becomes amazing. We have that here at Renew. I think there are friendships here in this room that are really, really strong because we have made a decision to be side-by-side with each other and go through life as fellow believers in Christ Jesus. Not because we're romantically involved or interested in somebody else, but because we love each other in a brotherly or sisterly way. So, uh, look at Acts chapter 19, real quick. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 This is what I alluded to earlier. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he's going to head to Jerusalem. And what we're going to see this morning is that he's on his way. We're going to look at verses 13 to 16, just kind of be like an intro, all right? But then, after that, our text this morning is going to loosely, I'm taking some liberties here, but loosely break down into three sections, all right? The first section is going to be uh, the example for believers. That's going to be verses 18 to 27, the example for believers. The second section is going to be the expectation of believers. That's going to be verses 28 to 35. And then our third section is just going to be the exit of believers, verses 36 and 38. So look at verse 13. Luke writes this, he says, But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for thus he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we 
took him on board and came to uh, Mytilene. And sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we went to Miletus. Okay. Then in verse 16, For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the Bay of Pentecost. So what we have here is we have Paul and his contemporaries, his missionary partners, proceeding to make their way closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's on his way back, okay? And when they leave Troas, we left them in Troas last week after being in the upper room, and Eutychus falls out the window, Paul revives him, and he preaches all night into the dawn, and then finally as the ship is about to leave, the missionaries get on board, and Paul says, I will meet you, I'm going to go by land. And this is a maybe a, a practical reason. We know that Paul was carrying probably a lot of goods, um, a lot of money, an offering for the saints in Jerusalem, he probably had a target on his back. We've seen throughout Paul's experiences here in Acts that he was often persecuted and, and attacked and the object of a plot by many of the Jews. And so we might assume that maybe he decided to go by land because he was wearing a target and maybe more vulnerable at sea, potentially. But for whatever reason, he decides to meet up with them on the ship later on, and they finally come to Miletus. And when they get there, they have Paul has purposefully um, circumvented or gone around Ephesus and not chosen to stop there. And we can assume that Luke tells us he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem if by chance that he could be there for Pentecost. Now, Think about if Paul had actually stopped in Ephesus. He had spent three years there ministering to them. He's got lots of friends. Um, can you imagine how much time people would have wanted to spend with Paul? You know, they probably would have likely wanted to have an audience with him and talk to him and had lots of questions and teaching and everything else. And he chooses not to stop there in Ephesus, but to go by on down to Miletus, where... Presumably, they knew the ship was going to board or board, but dock for a little while. So he's got some time there, and he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come down. Look at verse 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Okay. When my friend Brandon, who lives in California, when he comes to Ohio to visit, oftentimes he might come to Dayton or to Toledo where we grew up. And whenever he's coming to Dayton, I always tell him, you let me know where you're going to be and when, and I will go to you. I will go visit you because your time is not very well served when you come all the way over here from California, driving all over the state of Ohio to visit. You tell me where you're going to be, I'll go to you because it's more efficient. And I think maybe we see that this morning with Paul calling the elders to him from Ephesus. Ephesus is about 30 miles north of Miletus, right? So when he gets there to Miletus, he knows, okay, i got a couple of days here. I would love to say goodbye to my good friends, the elders in Ephesus. So I'm going to call for them 30 miles north. They'll come down and I'll get to chat with them and essentially say goodbye to them. 
So he calls for them. They come down. And look at what he says. Verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, watch this, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so we go back up to verse 18, which says that you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Now, just as a moment of clarity there, if some of you have a different translation, it might read slightly differently. Like the NIV says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Or the CEV says, you know everything I did during the time I was with you. Paul isn't saying, you know that I lived with you. You know that when I came and set foot in Asia, how I was with you 100% of the time. What he's saying is, you know that when I was in Asia, when I came to Ephesus, you saw how I lived. You saw my behavior. You saw how I was motivated. You saw how I was deeply interested and invested in serving the Lord. You saw this in very practical ways in my life. You witnessed it firsthand. And I would say that Paul, in a way, gives some examples of that. He probably gives four general examples of his service to the Lord. The first was in verse 19. He says, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So he says that I served with humility. And we do know that about Paul, don't we, from both our study of Acts and from the Pauline epistles. You know, he has called himself the chief of sinners. Um, He reminds the church in Corinth, I didn't come to you with fancy words and eloquent speech. I came to you just simply with Christ crucified. Um, He said, I was an apostle, one untimely born. Uh, I consider myself... My life not important. I'm poured out like a drink offering, he wrote to Timothy. Um, He wrote to Corinthians, I believe in 2 Corinthians, where he said, you know, we are dying daily so that you might have life. He was a humble guy. And yet at the same time, he told the Corinthians, look, if, if you want a resume, I can give you a resume of all resumes. I've got it. But that's not why I'm standing before you, and that's not what motivates me. So Paul certainly served the Lord with humility. He says that I served with tears. 
I'm sure he probably would have cried over many issues. Um, Romans chapter 9, he, he kind of explains that he cried and lamented for his own countrymen. That he desired that more than anything that Jews would see Jesus and understand him as the Messiah. He even wrote, if, if it would be possible for me to trade places with my fellow countrymen so that they might be saved, I would do that. Think about the tears that he probably shed just thinking about the Jews that he desired would be saved. I mean, friends of his, fellow Pharisees that he had to set aside and leave. In 2 Corinthians 2, he lamented over the immaturity of new believers. He essentially said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I really want to be rejoicing over you, but instead I'm crying over you because of the way they were essentially treating him and and falling victim to some of the false teachers that had come in and were persuading them. He says, I have served the Lord, and you remember watching me serve the Lord through plots against me by the Jews. We won't jump there, but many of you remember that he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about all the hardships that he had experienced. I've been shipwrecked. Multiple times, I have been stoned, I've been left for death, I've been beaten, I've been whipped, I have um, been robbed. I mean, he's got a really long list of trials that he has experienced. And so he reminds the elders there, you saw my life and you saw me serve the Lord in humility and through trials and plots against me and with many tears. The second example we see is in verses 20 and then 26 and 27. Paul never withheld an opportunity to teach or grow disciples about the Lord. Look at verse 20. says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. And if we jump down to 26 and 27, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men because, or for, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, if God shared something with Paul, he shared it with his audience. He shared it with anybody he came in contact with. And he says, I did it in the public spaces and I did it in the private spaces. I went first to the synagogue because salvation is first for the Jews and then for the Greeks or the Gentiles. He said, as soon as the, I was shut down in the synagogue, then I went to the houses and I spoke privately. But in all arenas, in all venues that I was ever in, I never stopped sharing the gospel. I never failed to share what God was giving me to dispense to my audience. And he says, I'm confident that I'm innocent of the blood of those who have rejected Christ because they have certainly heard Christ crucified and they have certainly heard about the gospel from me. Paul's saying, if you were ever in the presence of me, then I was sure to tell you about Jesus. The third example we see is in verse 21. I solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul didn't show any partiality. 
That's something that the elders of Ephesus would have witnessed about him serving the Lord. He didn't show a preference necessarily for Jews or for Gentiles and Greeks. He equally shared with all. That might be a challenge to us this morning. I would speculate to say that there are those people in your life who fall into categories where you go, eh, they're not my favorite. And you probably, if you're like me, if you're like me, you can probably justify and excuse not sharing the gospel with certain people groups because, well, who knows what kind of excuse you come up with. Let me share it for myself. You know, um, we have some Mormon friends that I don't really say much to anymore because I look at them as having already made a decision to reject Jesus. I have a Muslim client that I don't really say too much to, unfortunately, because I've already chalked him up in a category as having made a decision to reject Jesus. I don't think Paul did that. And I know that intellectually, each one of us will answer, do we believe the gospel is for everybody? And we will say yes. Intellectually, we will give the perfect answer. But practically in our lives, I would venture to say that we may not represent the answer that we give intellectually in a practical way. And then in verses 22 to 25, the fourth example we see that Paul shares with the elders about what they would have seen in his life for three years in Ephesus was that he didn't prioritize the preservation of his own life. Verses 22 to 25, Now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among you who I preached in the kingdom will not see my face anymore. Paul clearly understood that the Holy Spirit's directive for him was to go to Jerusalem He understood that afflictions and bonds awaited him in Jerusalem. And he essentially expected this. And he tells the elders, I'm not worried. I'm not looking forward to it, but I don't consider my life something that I am to prioritize. Paul writes of Jesus in Philippians that Jesus was obedient even unto the cross. That Jesus didn't seek equality with God as something to be obtained because he is God. So Jesus laid down his life so that God's redemptive plan could be made complete to rescue us from our sinful nature, from eternal condemnation. Think about if Jesus had prioritized his physical life, his physical well-being. Yet he did not. He died. He hung on that cross for you and me and said, I will lay down my life for those who will benefit from the salvation that will come. Through the cross, through the grave, and why I ascend back and sit at the right hand of my Father. 
Paul's life looks very much similar. He says, I'm not prioritizing my physical life. I am willing to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen, but knowing that bonds and afflictions await me. He told Timothy that he's fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And I'm excited about the crown of righteousness that I will receive. Think about how Jude closed his letter. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. That's how Jude finishes his letter. And so we see that through the example Paul gave, we see that it wasn't his works and his life that will earn him the crown of righteousness, but it is the blood of Jesus. But yet at the same time, he didn't consider not serving the Lord as an option. And so he reminds the elders, this is how you saw me live. This is an example to you. And I leave you with confidence. The promise of salvation in Christ Jesus. Now, verses 28 to 35, he's going to share his expectation of believers. And this is for all of us as well. Verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In verse 31, he says, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, and you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And in everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul is essentially going to charge or give instructions. He's going to outline expectations that he has for the elders when he leaves. I've given you my example, and now you need to know that the Holy Spirit will empower you to live just like I lived when I was with you. I'm going away. You won't see my face anymore on this side of heaven. But though I be gone, this is your charge. This is the expectation that I have of you, brethren. The first, verse 28 through 30. Be on guard and care for the flock. The first charge, the first expectation, be on guard. And he gives us this great word picture, which maybe he you know, took from Jesus' message in John 10 about the great shepherd. Jesus said, I am the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Um, Paul, Paul gives this beautiful word picture of the, of the other believers in Ephesus 
being the flock. And he says to these elders, you guys are now overseers. You're, you're shepherds. You need to shepherd God's people accordingly. But first, be on guard for yourselves. Why? Because if you're going to be entrusted and care for those with whom God has entrusted to you, you need to first make sure you're in the word every day, right? Parents, God has entrusted you as stewards of the children he has given us for a short time on this earth. Be in the word regularly and guard yourselves, parents, so that you can guard and shepherd your children. If you have co-workers who are young in the faith, you are a shepherd to them. You are a steward to those whom you see daily and maybe in the workplace. Maybe it's extended family. You know, Paul's command is to the elders, but you don't have to be an elder to be entrusted by the Lord to the care of others. Everybody in the body of Christ is charged with stewardship and the care of somebody else. And so guard yourselves. And Paul says, because the wolves will come in. You are a shepherd to those who are in your sphere of influence that God has entrusted to you. And as shepherds, you guard the flock from the wolves. And he says, there are wolves that are going to come in. I am leaving you and I'm going away. You'll never see my face again. And I can say with confidence that those will come into your midst and they will try to lead you astray. And then he even says, and this is the dangerous one, this is the scary one, there won't just be people who come from the outside and come into your church and try to lead you astray. There will be people who rise up from within your own ranks and will lead you astray. Be on guard yourselves for this. Think about how Jude described these people. Jude said, there are people who have risen up from within your own ranks. They have turned the grace of God into licentiousness, a license to sin. And Jude refers to them with another great word picture as they are hidden reefs. You know, the waves crash over them and the ships don't know that they're there and they cause destruction. They're hidden And they come into your love feasts and they destroy what God has been building up. Be on guard. The second expectation or charge that Paul gives, be on alert. Don't just be on guard, be on alert. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul spent three years, and he says he never stopped admonishing the church with tears. And he expects them to do the same for those they are leading. He says, I'm now entrusting you to God's care. And I I think this is beautiful. I think it's almost, I think it's a subtle dual meaning, right? He says, I'm commending you to God's care. And I think part of it is akin to when Jesus, in John chapter 17, is praying the high priestly prayer. and, And Jesus says, Father, 
I have not lost a single one that you have entrusted to me. And he says, you know, we won't count Judas. You know that God. You know, Father, that's not fair to count Judas. Right? He says, I haven't lost a single one that you have entrusted me. And now, Father, as I go to the cross, I give them back to you and commend them to your care. They are yours, Father. So in a way, I believe, in a very paternal kind of way, that Paul is saying something very similar. He's saying, I have been entrusted with these people, Lord. Um, I commend them back to you. Of course, he's saying it to them, but I commend you to God. But I think the other part of it is a charge to them. Because you belong to God, because you have the Holy Spirit living in you, that you now have a role. I now charge you with the role, the expectation that you will be in the Word daily and that you will lead people effectively. And how will you lead them? You will do this by God's grace, who can build you up and he can give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Because this is true about you, because God is doing this for you and has promised this to you, therefore, this is the manner in which you operate on behalf of others. I would say, you don't even have to work that hard. God is willing to empower you. You just have to be willing. You just have to know that his grace is sufficient. Now, the third Thing that he tells them, this expectation, this charge. He says in verses 33 to 35, remember, it's more blessed to give than receive. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, it sounds a little bit like an example and a little bit like a reminder. But I think he's sharing it with them because that's how he expects them to then behave when he's gone and they're the shepherds at Ephesus. He says, when I was with you, you know, I wasn't this huge um, depletion, this huge obligation to you. I worked with my own hands. Michael has reminded us on numerous occasions that Paul was a tent maker and that he would go to a particular city first, oftentimes by himself. He would establish some revenue and he would work with his hands and he would uh, finance himself until Timothy and Erastus and Titus and others would come join him. And then he could be freed up to go and do ministry and missionary work 100% of the time while they were there helping to do the financial and other maybe logistics. So Paul says, when I came to you in Ephesus, you would remember that I wasn't a financial burden to you. I didn't lean on you to take care of me. I didn't require a paycheck. He even defended himself with the Corinthians and Second Corinthians, and you know when when others, those other teachers were accusing him of skimming off the top and saying, "Well, you know, he's taking up an offering for himself." He says, "No, I haven't been a financial burden to you by any means, and even those who minister with me, we have cared." For ourselves, And I think what he's saying is, the expectation is that you should do the same. Don't we have that backwards in the church today oftentimes? 
Maybe not here, but we watch the televangelists on television, and, you know, not all of them have ulterior motives, but some certainly do. And unfortunately, there are many uh, uh, individual churches that have become so big that it's the tail wagging the dog. And I don't mean that they have set out with ill motives or that they even have ill will in their hearts or false motives. I think sometimes the machine gets so big that they have to make that a large priority to bring money in just to make the machine continue to function. But we certainly see the opposite. We certainly see the evangelists and those who are far more interested in taking the exact quote that Paul took from Jesus when Jesus said it's more blessed to give. What do many of these TV leaders do? They say, Jesus said it's more blessed to give, so therefore you need to give so you can be blessed. Right? Exact same quote. Paul says... I want you as leaders to give to those you minister to because it is more blessed to give. And the people you lead will be blessed by you not being a burden to them. But today, people take the same quote from Jesus and say it's more blessed to give. Therefore, you you need to give so that you can be blessed. I mean, Paul would be rolling over in his grave watching many of the televangelists today misrepresenting a very quote from our Lord and Savior. And misunderstanding the role of leadership. The role of servant leaders. I think Paul's essentially saying to his audience, I didn't do that when I was with you. And, and when I'm gone, don't do that for the people there in Ephesus. The people you're leading, don't become a financial burden to them. Don't be in this for the paycheck. Be a servant leader. They will be blessed, and you will be blessed as a result. And so then our last section, and this maybe ties back to what I had mentioned about phileo, love. Brotherly love. I loosely titled this last section, The Exit of Believers. Verse 36 through 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken. And that word was that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Luke says that after Paul had spent time talking to his friends, he knelt down with them, presumably right there on the shore, before boarding that ship, and he prayed with them. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of friendship. You know, and I, I have a note in a, in a really old NIV Bible that I've got right next to this passage. And I just have a note that says, you know, we should always enjoy and love kneeling down and praying with others 
whom we are close to in the body of Christ. And I even have a list of names there, a, a list of names that have been added to through the years of, of people that I have absolutely loved, cherished, the act of praying, because that's the role that they have played in my life. It has been a pleasure. It's been a privilege. It has been so special to me to be able to pray with those people. And I've got that list of names, and I continue to add to it. And in verse 37, we see it says, They began to weep aloud, and a more literal translation there for weeping is that Luke writes, A considerable weeping of all occurred. You know, our translations say that they began weeping aloud, but a more literal said that a considerable weeping of all who were present occurred. It says that they embraced Paul. A more literal translation of that is that they fell on him completely. Or they... They, they grabbed kind of around him, around his neck. They, they just collapsed on him with such great love and passion. And then, just as a preview to next week, verse 1 of chapter 21. And when it came about that we had departed from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to cause. Now, that word there, parted, or departed. I don't know what your version or your translation might say. But as an example, the ESV says that Luke writes, we, <laughs> we tore ourselves away from them. Luke writes that after these elders falling on Paul and embracing him and hugging him, and they all knelt and prayed and they were all weeping aloud, Luke says... After we tore ourselves away from our friends, we got on the ship and we headed on a straight course to cause. Think about that. That's, that's a brotherly love in Christ Jesus, which is a bond, a cement, a mortar that's got to be tighter than anything. And I would say that this exit of Paul, this this exit that he is now embarking on from his friends at Ephesus should in some way be similar to our lives. Not that we are headed to Jerusalem where bonds and afflictions wait but simply that we have had an impact on those in our sphere of influence and our contemporaries that is moving and moves them. It's not about building ourselves up. It's not about glorifying or being pious or in some way crafting some resume for ourselves. I'm simply saying that our life serving the Lord for his glory should result in the people around us certainly being impacted when we're gone. 
We celebrate at memorial service when a believer leaves this life and goes to be with Jesus. You know, the word says, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus himself. And that is such a great truth. That's a beautiful promise that we have as believers. But though that be true, and we celebrate that, we also mourn for those who we no longer see on this side of heaven. For those whom their faces we will see no more, we certainly mourn. And think about those believers who have set these amazing examples for us, whom we have seen in their life a pattern of serving the Lord and fully sold out completely dedicated to God. Think about the impact that has had on you. That's part of what causes us to mourn, is the beautiful service that we have witnessed from those believers in our lives. May that be true of us, that when we, when our faces are no longer seen by our friends and contemporaries, that they would weep because of the service that they have seen in our lives for the glory of God. And so, we'll close with just a couple of comments. Paul's own life was an example to those that he ministered to and led, and I would challenge us, myself included, that our lives should also be examples to those around us. Our lives should be lived so that we become these big pointing arrows to Christ Jesus. right? That when somebody sees you and spends time with you, that they see Jesus. Not because you're divine, not because you're God, but because the way you conduct yourself, you represent him. And what shines through your words and your actions is Jesus. The expectation... God's expectation of us is that we would continue to be on guard and be alert. We should regularly be in God's word, first for ourselves, and secondly for the people in our sphere of influence, whom God has made us stewards of. Even if for a short time, we should be evaluating what others are saying from the word of God. You all do a great job of that, I hope. And Michael and I have shared on numerous occasions that... There is a freedom and an invitation that is irrevocable that you might come up to us at any time and say, I'm not sure about what you said. Or, would you walk me through this again? Or, explain this. You have license, you have the right, you have the obligation to come to us if you feel that something we have said does not accurately reflect the word of God or his character or anything that he has revealed to us about himself. That is what it means to be on alert and be on guard, is that you all are Bereans in the flesh, searching the scriptures to make sure that what you're hearing and what you witness, whether it's here or in any other corporate gathering of Christ, that it is consistent with the word of God and the character of God. That's what Paul wanted of the elders. That's what Jesus wants of us. And then the last thing with regard to the exit. Um, I shared this already, but our parting with 
other believers and friends should certainly leave an impression. People should celebrate that they will once again see us in heaven and celebrating with the King of Kings, but at the same time, they should mourn that they no longer get to see us because we haven't had we have had an impact on their lives. And that's okay. It's okay for them to mourn and to long to see us and to miss us because we have imparted something to them. And so hopefully the example and the expectations and then ultimately this exit that we've seen of Paul to his friends and from his friends there in Ephesus has been a challenge for us and continues to be a challenge for how we might live and glorify and serve the Lord. That people would say, the entire time I knew your name, fill it in, we saw him, we saw her serving the Lord with humility and through trials and with many tears. What a great testimony that would be for us and how glorifying that is to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen.